This podcast is for general educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical, practice management, legal, investment, or other professional advice. No one should act or refrain from acting based on this podcast without obtaining appropriate professional advice. It always comes down to education first and then being able to pass along savings to the patients, not just savings at the insurance level and at the PBM rebate level, but really making these cost effective and really driving down the cost, which was the intention of biosimilars so that everyone is benefiting from the reduced cost of these drugs. And I am a big proponent of remove the barriers to the physician's offices. Don't require step therapy. You know, make this really accessible and that will help uh, generate uptick uh, in the use of biosimilars as well. Make it easy for our physicians and our patients. Welcome to Gastro Broadcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. My guest today is Laura D. Wingate, who is Executive Vice President of Education, Support, and Advocacy with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. Four new biosimilar drugs for the treatment of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis have recently become available to U.S. patients, and several more are expected to come to market soon. I'm excited for Laura to join us today for a discussion of both the positive and negative implications of these biosimilars for patients. Laura, welcome to Gastro Broadcast. Thank you for having me. That's great. I'm a, um, I'm a very big CCF supporter, very active here. You know, you probably know that the Washington, D.C. Uh, chapter is like the largest in the United States, I think. It's a very big chapter, and thank you for your participation in the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Um, we always like to start by getting to know our guests. Uh, tell me about your path to Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. I'm truly uh, one of those people that took a uh, winding and circuitous path. The short version is um, I started my career at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, uh, working in uh, quality of care uh, and surgical oncology. And after a few years there, I joined the Big Apple Circus Clown Care Program that provides professional entertainers to pediatric and geriatric centers around the country. Uh, still related to healthcare, but working in a very different part. And then uh, my dad uh, was diagnosed with Crohn's disease and an opportunity to join the Crohn's Colitis Foundation uh, came up and it really was the culmination of my uh, passion for healthcare and being able to do something that I, would, I felt and feel will have a direct influence on uh, improving the outcomes for patients and caregivers who are impacted by these chronic uh, diseases, Crohn's disease and also colitis. So uh, I've been with the foundation for 16 years and I've enjoyed getting to work on a million different things, including biosimilars. Well, gastroenterologists treat many patients with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And we're all very familiar with the biologics that have been available and have seen biosimilars come to market for infliximab. Myra has been available for almost two decades, but Abbott, uh, AbbVie, was able to protect its patent for a very long time. It's only recently that this summer we have four new biosimilar drugs available and several more coming soon. What does the availability of these biosimilars mean for patients from your standpoint? 
of view, having biosimilars um, and more of them uh, really is about increasing access to these much needed treatments. We know that before biosimilars, many patients weren't getting prescribed biologics. There's all kinds of heat map demonstrations of prescribing habits and patients in rural, urban, and other communities didn't have the same access to the biologic medications. And in many cases for moderate and severe IBD, these are the best treatment options. So having biosimilars be approved by the FDA and the expansion of the availability now that uh, the Humira biosimilars are entering market really is about increasing access. And the second most important thing, which hasn't happened yet, but I am optimistic that it will, is cost savings, not just to the healthcare system, but cost savings for patients down the road. Yeah, we, we agree. I mean, it's, um, it's interesting. Our, you know, we're a very big practice. We have always found it uh, difficult for patients to get access to more expensive medications. And when Remicade first became available, you know, the results were dramatic. Patients really improved. But uh, in trying to get infusion services for patients, it was difficult because the co-payments were so large, particularly at hospital outpatient departments. So at, at some point, we made the decision, well, we need to do this. We need to deliver these medications because we're so much less expensive than the hospital. And there was nothing more frustrating than hearing from patients that, well, I skipped my dose of medicine because I couldn't afford the copay. And obviously, uh, taking control of that has really helped. And then with Humira, the ability to go to a non-infusible drug, an injectable drug, made it even made it even easier. Do you think that there's uh, challenges posed by the availability of multiple biosimilars for the same originator product? Yes, there could be some confusion, but. I believe there's a strong role for education in addressing the confusion of having multiple biosimilars. Um, one, uh, there's the need to educate the healthcare professionals about all the available biosimilars, and then encourage them to work with their patient and having a conversation, discussing their insurance to see which biosimilars are offered, because it will be rare that any patient would have access to every biosimilar that's on the market. And so having that conversation and that shared decision-making between the patient and healthcare provider is so important. And then on the other side, helping patients understand that yes, there are soon to be 10 biosimilars for Humira available, but they need to speak to their physician understand that how safe and effective biosimilars are, and then look at their insurance so that they know the limited uh, biosimilar options that are available to them. And I think having that in place, the education and accessing their insurance will help eliminate that confusion. I, I agree. Uh, you know, at the beginning, there was a lot of hesitation to switch patients. You were, you know, patients doing great, do I really want to change their drug? What do you think we should consider when discussing switching to biosimilars and switching back or switching to alternative biosimilars? The first thing is, you know, 
helping a patient understand that these are safe, these are effective, they've been approved by the FDA, that it's not going to cause immunogenicity or their drug to fail. And then helping them to understand that, you know, when they're educated about these, that you all know this as physicians, that the nocebo effect, that the better job that we do helping the patient understand their drug, that help and make that decision with you rather than being forced to switch. I am always saying this to our insurance uh, constituents that, you know, educate allow the physician and the patient to make this decision together and we'll have much better uptake of bioassemblers than a force switch where there's a piece of paper mailed to a patient and they're told they have to do something. Nobody wants to be told they have to do something. So making it a conversation, making it about a shared choice between the physician and the patient that's gonna be much more acceptable to both the physician and the patient than a forced mandated switch. Well, I, I, um, I'm a big uh, believer in the education part of it and really appreciate the work that CCF has done uh, on their website with uh, education. So if I, are you involved with sort of content and things on the website? I am. I work with an amazing team of both the foundation staff and volunteers like yourself from around the country who uh, dedicate their time to helping us co-create the education. And we always have patients involved in creating the education along with our healthcare professionals so that we get that not just the evidence-based information out there, but the voice of the patient and explain things in ways that are meaningful to them. And I appreciate your compliment on the resources. Thank you. They're, they're great. What do you think are the key barriers to biosimilar access or biologic access in the U.S.? And what can we do to accelerate adoption of biosimilars uh, in the United States? The first thing is don't make it a mandated switch encourage our insurance carriers, our PBMs, to really work with the foundations, work with the GIs to allow for that to be a conversation. And that's gonna avoid a lot of nocebo and resistance to biosimilars. So it always comes down to education first and then being able to pass along savings to the patients, not just savings at the insurance level and at the PBM rebate level, but really making these cost effective and really driving down the cost, which was the intention of biosimilars so that everyone is benefiting from the reduced cost of these drugs. And I am a big proponent of remove the barriers to the physician's offices. Don't require step therapy. You know, make this really accessible and that will help uh, generate uptick uh, in the use of biosimilars as well. Make it easy for our physicians and our patients. No, I agree. I, um, again, being here in Washington, D.C., have had the opportunity to be on Capitol Hill and be on Capitol Hill with CCF, with the American Gastroenterological Association, for the initial launch and the attempt to get step therapy, uh, patient access, you know, the, the bill has been renamed four times because it keeps getting reintroduced in every congressional session. But it, it is uh, frustrating to have to go through the hoops of step therapy or prior authorization. One of the things I think we're seeing now that's a little frustrating is 
individual commercial carriers will pick a favorite. They will pick their favorite biosimilar and pretty much mandate that the patient who wants to get adalimumab or infliximab, oh, you got to pick this biosimilar. And it's frustrating because they change their mind about every three to six months. And uh, that has been frustrating. Is CCF keeping an eye on prior authorization and, uh, as well, I assume? Absolutely. And first, thank you for coming to Capitol Hill and advocating on behalf of the IBD community. And yes, prior authorizations, step therapy reform, PBM reform, we are active along with the professional societies and not only monitoring this legislation, but proactively testifying on why these policies are hurting patients and hurting our healthcare professionals and overall delaying care that's necessary. And this is one of the things that, you know, we hate when we hear stories of a patient who was stable on a biosimilar, let's say, doing well, and then the insurance changes their preferred brand and they have to switch. And those mid-year switches um, are de demoralizing for the patient. They got comfortable with their drug, they're doing well. It creates fear. So these are things that we're advocating for policy change on Capitol Hill as well at the state level so that we can protect all insured patients. Uh, really appreciate your involvement there as well. You know, independent GI practices across the country, as I said, have been involved in uh, setting up infusion sites because of the, the alternative is a much more expensive hospital outpatient department. But as you look towards the future, the question is what's going to happen with infusible drugs versus injectable drugs versus you know, uh, small molecule pills. One of the things our, my practice is debating now is what does the future of infusion look like? Do you, do you think we're going to move away from infusion? Is it, is it a less expensive way to administer biologics? I don't know that we're going to move away entirely from infusible drugs, but I, I believe patient preference will play a big role in how patients want to uh, receive their biologics and biosimilars. And as you said, the entry of the small molecule uh, drugs is also game changing. In the near future, advocating for choice on where patients get their infusions and having the ability to make that choice with their healthcare professional is something the foundation's advocating for so that you're not forced to go to a hospital infusion center where it's more expensive, that there is choice, or even some do home infusions. And so creating that environment where it's safe, it's effective, and the patient and the healthcare professional make that decision. Yeah, I think one of the reasons that doctors like infusion is we get to put our eyes on the patient every, you know, six weeks, eight weeks. When patients are doing injection at home, it's hard to know whether or not they're compliant. The day that they don't show up for their infusion, I know that day they're not compliant. So it's a little, it's a little better to keep track, particularly, um, we see a lot of adolescents and younger people whose lives just seem to be too busy, particularly once they start feeling well. 
Well, so and I do think you make a really important point that there are patients who infusions are the best option, whether it's a young adult that maybe is transitioning from pediatric to adult care for the first time and an infusion allows the, the, the in-person visit uh, with their healthcare professional uh, or there, uh, there could be other reasons that infusions make the most sense. And so again, I think it has to be, if all things are equal, the best choice between the healthcare professional and the patient making that decision. I appreciate it. You know, um, one of the things our practice is very proud of is we have an engagement with some of the communities here where healthcare is difficult to access, where there's an underrepresentation of uh, healthcare providers and certainly underrepresentation for minorities in healthcare. So do you have any advice for young people who may be in, interested in careers in healthcare? How do, how do we get them pointed to, uh, to healthcare careers if you had the way of, of doing that? Oh, if I had a, a magic wand and could support the careers of young people, you know, get the STEM, education that's needed and recognize that there are lots of careers in healthcare. There is the physician that is much needed, the researcher who's much needed to ensure we have the, the pipeline of the next generation as we move towards what I hope will one day be cures for inflammatory bowel disease. And then there's also people like me who want to help educate and support patients and caregivers along their journey. And we're all complementary in the healthcare system and there's lots of different ways. So I would encourage uh, young people interested to explore the different careers, get their science education because science education is part of my background as well. I wouldn't be able to educate if I, I didn't understand some of these things and work closely with our volunteers like yourself to continue the good work of educating and supporting patients, not just in their own hometown, but think worldwide. How can we elevate the conversation of healthcare? Well, I really uh, appreciate your time today. Um, very interesting information. It's nice to make a connection at CCF, somebody that I can dial up. Uh, Anytime. <laughs> if you're down in Washington and you want to go take a trip to Capitol Hill, one of the things I've found for advocacy is when one of the associations, uh, CCF or AGA, goes to Capitol Hill with a doctor and with a patient, it's, it's kind of hard for them to uh, avoid our, our message. So be happy to uh, go downtown with you and uh, lock arms and see if we can get things done. So, Likewise, I, I would love that myself. And you're right. It's hard to deny a physician providing the evidence and the reason and a patient telling their story. Yeah. So thank you for your advocacy. Well, uh, again, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for joining us on Gastro Broadcast. Thank you for listening to the Gastro Broadcast. Find new episodes through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. For information about our hosts, guests and supporters, visit gastrobroadcast.com. Produced by Steadfast Collaborative.